Does that still happen when you go to school? Has anyone ever said, can I go to the bathroom, and your teacher has corrected you on that? Raise your hand if that's actually happened to you. Yes, it has happened to me as well. I don't know if I would go so strong as to say I hate it. I strongly dislike it. That is what my parents used to tell me. Is it awkward yet? Good. Okay. All right. It's good to see all of you guys. I'm going to pray before we get started, and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for this time. I pray you would just protect this time, um, protect your word, um, let it um, be heard by people who have ears to hear and hearts um, that would see the glory of your kingdom and the glory of your word. Um, we would have nothing, we would be nothing if it were not for uh, your grace through the gospel. So please make us believe it and live as a result of believing it. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Um, so you guys know that we are now six weeks uh, into our series called How to Change. Um, and we're not doing this series just to randomly fill time. Um, we're doing this uh, for a reason. There's a reason we decided to do this series and not another book study like we did in Colossians. Now that a different topic, um, not even topics that we've already heard things about like at the uh, apologetics conference that we went to. Good questions that have good answers. Uh, the reason we're doing How to Change um, is at least for two reasons. Um, number one, we're doing a series on how to change because uh, if you're a Christian, you want to change. Um, and that's not something that, if you're a Christian and I'm talking to you, I don't need to convince you of that. You want to change because you know um, that even though you are saved and you know that Jesus loves you and he died for you, um, that doesn't mean that we come to him and we stay the same way. Um, we naturally change as a result of being in a relationship with God, and that helps us to know him more, to glorify him more, um, and to represent his name well as we call others to accept the gospel. But the other reason is because whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, um, sin exists, and we are sinners. Uh, and sin is dangerous, it is available at any turn, um, and therefore we need to know not only how to turn away from it, but to fight against it, and to know how to be righteous uh, instead of sinners. And that's why we're doing this series. That's why the first four weeks um, we covered the foundations of change, um, that you don't just start changing out of nowhere. You have to have uh, the right nature, which is to glorify God. You have to be a new person, which happens as a result of being unified with Christ. You need to know how your heart works, so you know that glorifying God means thinking his thoughts, uh, desiring what he desires, and seeking to do his will rather than our own will. And then fourthly, you still need to be able to depend on the Spirit, because it's only by the Spirit that you can walk away from sin and turn to Christ and continue to walk in Christ's path for your life, and that you can know that you're adopted into God's family, not as a result of you earning anything, but as a result of believing uh, the gospel. We did four weeks of that, and now what I've told you is the next like four sermons, starting from last week, continuing this week, um, is dealing with the practicality of change. What change actually looks like when you start changing. And I told you that can be summed up in one word, and that's repentance. Repentance can sum up the practical part of what the Bible talks about when telling you how to change. And it's really easy to defend that, actually, because the word repentance literally means turning or changing. So when we say repenting, we're not just saying uh, one thing we did one time. This is the constant pattern of the Christian life. If you're a Christian, you have repented of your sin but you also continue to repent of your sin because you continue to not want it. You continue to see it in a worse and worse light. And then by the light of the gospel and Christ, you can walk more towards the light and you can be cleaned even more. Though you've been declared righteous as a Christian through Christ, you desire to walk um, in more righteousness. And that means uh, repentance. Every week, uh, these next four weeks that we talk about repentance, I wanna just keep giving you definitions for repentance. So last week I gave you one definition. Here's the definition for repentance uh, to add another one. Repentance means changing my mind about sin. Changing my mind about sin. I used to love sin. I used to live as if sin wasn't a big deal, but I've changed my mind about it. So it's not just that I've stopped sinning. I still struggle with sin as a Christian. Um, but I don't desire it the way I did before, and so I progress in change. It's a process. It takes uh, time. 
Uh, Thomas Watson, I'll quote from him a lot uh, through the series, he wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance, and this was his definition. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit where a sinner is inwardly humbled and outwardly reformed. Did you catch that? It is inwardly humbling and then an outward reforming. So something has changed on the inside, and because I've changed on the inside, then I change on the outside. And that's going to be important because if you don't do that, that means you're not resting in the gospel, which is you don't change in order to get saved. You change because you are already saved. Change is a result of salvation. Sanctification comes after salvation. And the expression that I told you last week was that we're not talking about actions first. We're talking about attitude. What is your attitude towards your own sin? What do you think about it? And the example we went last week was David. David had committed this sin of not only adultery, uh, but then murdering the woman he was with's uh, husband. Both Bathsheba and Uriah suffered as a result of David's sin, but the one who was really sinned against was God, because it was God who ordered the world, and his law was the one that was broken. And we could see in his confession of repentance in Psalm 51 uh, that David considered his sin a big deal, and he brought it to God. He was honest about it. He didn't hide anything. He admitted all of it. He asked for forgiveness. He desired to be restored to God. And he wanted that change to happen, not only so he could glorify God in the future, not only so he could continue to fight sin and even greater and with more effort, but also so that he could teach other people. So he could glorify God through evangelism and through teaching others wisdom, teaching Christians wisdom. And today, as we go to part two of this, I want to explain to you uh, from scripture, from 2 Corinthians, um, another example of repentance that will be foundational for us. And that has to deal with the example of the church in Corinth. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go over to 2 Corinthians 7. And while you're turning there, and while I'm turning there as well, actually, let me give you the setup for this very quickly. Uh, Corinth was a place uh, that Paul planted a church. When he talks to the Corinthians, he's talking to people who lived in a city called Corinth. And Corinth was a um, very exciting place to live if you uh, loved sin, and it was a terrible place to live if you were a Christian because uh, the Corinthians loved sin. It was a very popular place. Uh, you might even say it was kind of like the Las Vegas of the ancient Near East. Um, but the amazing thing that had happened is Paul had come, founded a church, explained the gospel, and a ton of people got saved. Um, and we actually have two letters in the Bible, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that he wrote to those Christians because even after they became Christians, they were incredibly messy, and they still struggled with a ton of sin. And it's actually encouraging reading about that, because we can be encouraged that even though we continue to sin, and even though we are messy, um, we can still be Christians because of the gospel. And so even though there's a lot of sin that Paul confronts to the Corinthian church, it's still very encouraging to know that he still considered them Christians because they believed the gospel, and the gospel was changing them albeit very slowly, because there was actually a lot of problems in the Corinthian church, and it didn't just have to deal with their personal lives. It actually had to deal with Paul as well. At one point, it seems like, not only because of their sin, but because there were false teachers in that church, um, after a year and a half of Paul pastoring a church, he left for a number of years, came back, and he wanted to encourage them to continue to grow, um, and the Corinthians basically rejected Paul. Um, they didn't want to obey what he was telling them to do as a result of being an apostle to God. Um, and he left incredibly sad. So not just mad, but sad. And the reason was because he loved the Corinthians. He wanted to see them changed, and the Corinthians rejected him. And so he ended up writing them a letter um, that we don't have and we don't have copies of, but um, he actually mentions it in 2 Corinthians. It's called the severe letter or the sorrowful letter. And it's kind of self-explanatory. I mean, it's sorrowful because he was incredibly sad. And it was severe because he was super straightforward with them that they sinned against him and they needed to change. And if they didn't change, that might be a sign that they actually weren't Christians. And Paul was wondering if his whole time in Corinth was just a big waste of time. But regardless of that, after he wrote that letter, um, he sent Titus, a friend of his, one of his disciples who loved the Corinthians too, 
He gave them that letter to give to the Corinthians. And then he continued to pastor churches, and he really didn't know if anything would change. But what's amazing, absolutely amazing, is that Titus came back, and he not only said that they accepted Titus and heard the message that Paul gave him to give them, um, but they had actually repented. They had actually realized that they had sinned. They had felt sorrow for it. They were grieved of it. Um, they wanted to make up for it. And so they sent back word with Titus to Paul to ask for his forgiveness. And Paul was absolutely overwhelmed. He was so encouraged. He didn't know if he could hope for that good of an outcome, and yet it came as a result of God's grace. And he was so excited that he wrote them back uh, his third letter, which is the letter of 2 Corinthians that we have here. And it's both one of the most theological writings that Paul ever wrote, as well as one of the happiest, most emotional letters he ever read. And if you just spend time just sitting and reading it, you'll actually uh, see that. But we can see that as we kind of dive into 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, and verse 6 and 7 is kind of set up um, what we're going to talk about tonight. In uh, verses uh, 6 and 7 in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says this. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So Paul is just explaining how pumped he was, how excited he was, because the Corinthians repented. Uh, but one of the other reasons he was so happy is because he was worried that that sorrowful letter that he wrote, I gotta start saying severe letter, sorrowful is way too much for my mouth. The severe letter that he sent, he was worried uh, that he was too rough on them. He was worried that he was way too harsh with them and that they wouldn't forgive him because they thought he was being mean. Uh, but it turns out that was not the case. Um, so he writes in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 4, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Have you ever loved someone so much um, that you were driven to push past uncomfortability and say something hard but true to somebody else. When I got older, I used to ask my parents um, just about what I used to do that made them spank me because I did so many things wrong when I was a kid and I got spanked a lot and it was all deserved. Um, but when I had those conversations, when I became an adult, I found out that every time my parents spanked me, they went to the other room and they would just cry. They would just cry so badly because they felt bad about it. Um, and the kind of pain that they had as parents is very similar to Paul. Um, sometimes you have to do very, very hard things that are both uncomfortable and might cause pain to you and even pain to somebody else. But if something important is on the line, for my parents, it was me growing up to be mature, to be disciplined, to have short-term consequences for long-term gain. And it was the exact same for the Corinthians. Um, if Paul didn't do this short-term, painful confrontation of their sin, it could lead to long-term problems for the Corinthians. Spiritual destruction. Forfeiting the salvation that Christ died for them. And so Paul did it. And so he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8, I made you grieve with my letter, but I don't regret it. Though I did regret it because I see that your letter grieved you, though only for a little while. Short-term spiritual pain, long-term spiritual growth. It really makes it true what the proverb writer says in Proverbs 27.6 when he says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But then Paul explains that he was so joyful that there truly were signs of long-term growth. And this is where we're going to camp out today. Um, what Paul is going to explain is how happy he was with the response of repentance he saw in the Corinthians. Uh, where we're really going to be homing in on today is chapter 7, verses 9, 10, and 11. So follow along with me in your Bibles as I just read this to you. Paul says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what 
eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Paul was so excited, not just that he commanded them to repent and they obeyed, but that he said, please accept the gift of repentance that God has given you, and they did accept it. Now, what I'm going to do is walk through these verses with you, and I want to help you ex- uh, assess your own hearts. I want you to think about repentance. I want you to think about your repentance. And I want to ask you this, is it real? Is your repentance real? And I think this will set us up really nicely because this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible to assess if you've really repented. Now, before I give you a series of questions to ask yourself, and these will be helpful for you for small groups, I want to first say this, because this is, I think, a problem that we have. Uh, We want to look at a checklist, and we want to say, if I've got all of the checks marked on the checklist, that makes it real. So here's the clarification that's going to be so important for us as we look at the realness of our repentance. Here it is. If you forget everything else in the sermon, remember this one sentence. Real repentance is sincere, not perfect. Real repentance is sincere, not perfect. Let me give you two quick quotes that I think help explain what I mean by that. Uh, This first one is from a man named Paul Washer. He's a pastor. Some of you have heard of him. This is what Paul Washer said. God saves people who repent, not people who repent perfectly. Did you catch that? People who repent, not people who repent perfectly. God saves brokenhearted people, even the ones who are brokenhearted over the fact that they're not brokenhearted enough. And even those who think they're brokenhearted enough, but God knows that they aren't hardly brokenhearted at all. Do you catch what he's explaining there? He's talking about your attitude. He's saying that there is no way you could ever feel as sad for sin as you possibly could. What you're trying to do is figure out if anything's there at all. That's what we're trying to figure out. That your attitude over your sin has to change first and then your actions. We will never do enough to be saved. Repentance won't save us. But repentance is a gift that we are given that we imperfectly perform. Here's the second quote that I think is also helpful. This is from Spurgeon, and you guys know I quote from Spurgeon a lot, and I think justifiably. This is what Spurgeon says. We can no more repent perfectly than we can live perfectly. However pure our tears are, there will always be some dirt in them. There will always be something to be repented of, even in our best repentance. But listen, to repent is to change your mind about sin and Christ and all the great things of God. If there is this turning, then you have the essence of true repentance. You are never going to repent if you think repentance must be this perfect package you give to God. Repentance, something else Paul Washer once said, is as simple as sometimes saying, God, I'm falling. God, I'm failing. God, I need help. So as I give you these questions... And these questions should help you examine the sincerity of your repentance. I want you to know that you're not always going to have all of these perfect things in place. But what I'm saying is that the more you look at these questions that I think flow from what 2 Corinthians 7 is talking about, you're going to start understanding how your repentance can be more and more purified so that your life can be more and more purified. So let's get started. Question number one. There's eight questions, by the way. We won't spend a massive amount of time on all of them. Question number one. Do I grieve over my sin? Do I grieve over my sin? And we get that from the word grief that he mentions in verse 9, 10, and 11 uh, many, many times. Grief is simply sadness. Grief means regret. It means regret over something you've done. And it's not just thinking you've done something wrong. It's feeling you've done something wrong. Now, Paul could have used a word for sadness, but he used this word because it's not just being sad, but it's being deeply sorrowful. 
It's wishing I could take back what I've done or what I'm thinking of doing. And this is important for us because you might remember way back in the third sermon that we did on how to change, that your heart, who you are, is a result of your thinking, your desires, and your will. And grieving has to deal with the first two, your thinking and your feeling. What do you think about your sin and how do you feel about your sin? Thomas Watson says this, it's more likely that a woman could give birth to a child without pain than that someone could have repentance without sorrow. We are to find more bitterness in weeping for sin than we ever found sweetness in committing sin. Surely David found more bitterness in repenting that he ever found comfort in Bathsheba than he did bitterness in repentance. Repentance is the result of realizing that you have more pain than the pleasure sin ever gave you. Repentance realizes that sin brings more pain than pleasure. Second question, and this will help clarify the first question. Is my grief godly? Is my grief godly? Paul explains that there's a right kind of grieving and a wrong kind of grieving. There's a right kind of sadness and a wrong kind of sadness. And that's important because these two kinds, which he calls worldly grief and godly grief, they can look very similar. You know, they're both grief. Both of them are responding to sinful behavior. Both of them are emotional in some way. Um, both of them might even lead to an apology. It might even going to someone that you sinned against and saying, I'm sorry for what I did. And both of them actually might produce a behavioral change. Your life might look different as a result of it, whether you have worldly grief or godly grief. And so the question's kind of obvious, right? Which is, what's the difference between worldly grief and godly grief? And honestly, there's a lot of differences between the two, but we're just going to go with one. Godly grief is sad about how sin has affected God, not how sin has affected us. Did you catch that? Godly grief cares about sin's effect on God, not sin's effect on us. It's another quote from Thomas Watson. Godly sorrow is sincere. It is sorrow for the offense and not sorrow for the punishment. God's law has been trespassed and his love has been abused, and that melts our souls in tears. A man could be sorry and yet not repent. A thief is sorry when he's caught, but only because he stole and he has to pay a penalty. For example, Pharaoh was more troubled about the frogs than for his sin. Godly sorrow, however, is sorrow over the trespass against God, so that even if our conscience didn't afflict us and the devil didn't accuse us and hell wasn't our punishment, our souls would still be grieved because of the offense done to God. And he still grieves for sinning against that free grace which was promised to him. A good example of this might also be the difference between Peter and Judas. Both of them had sorrow for a sin they had committed. Peter was sorrowful because he lied about knowing Christ. But eventually Christ came to him, restored him, and even though he messed up many, many times going forward, you can tell he repented because he grew in godliness and eventually was leading the church that Christ had established. That was godly sorrow. But Judas was very different. He was sorrowful too, but he didn't turn to God for forgiveness. Instead, he turned to the Pharisees and tried to give the money back. And his guilty conscience was so seared with sin, and he was so determined not to repent, that it eventually led to suicide before he would ask God for forgiveness. That's a good example of what sin and a lack of repentance does. It's destructive, and it's tragic. That's why Paul says it produces death. Worldly sorrow is anti-God, and therefore it's anti-life and anything life-giving. And it's anti-any kind of spiritual growth. Godly grief is totally different. It leads back to the mercy and forgiveness of God. It is a short-term pain that leads to long-term life. The way Paul says it is a salvation without regret. And that means, as one commentator said, it is salvation, which means restoration to the fullness of life. It means to be whole again and to live in harmony with God and his people. 
the salvation Paul is talking about is not talking about your ultimate salvation. Um, sometimes he uses that word just to talk about restoration, being reunited with Christ because sin has separated you from feeling the intimacy of a life with Christ. And so the question is, have you experienced the joy that comes after godly grief over your sin? Have you experienced the joy that is found after you have deeply felt that your sin is wrong because it was against God? Paul says that true repentance always leads one to sorrow over sin because God has been transgressed. Have you felt that? Question number three, do I want to be as godly as possible? Do I want to be as godly as possible? And that comes because Paul says the Corinthians had earnestness, earnestness. Earnestness is really a combination of two things. Uh, number one is that going forward, I want to do my best. I want to do the best I can. I want to be intense about godliness. I want to be diligent in it. I want to fight. I want to do whatever it takes to be godly. But it also comes with this. The other part of earnestness is wanting to do it as quickly as possible. It's being impatient about my own spiritual growth. It's saying there are more blessings to be found in a life with Christ than I currently have, so I'm going to rush after them, and I'm going to waste no time. Here's the question. Do you want to be as godly as possible? Are you content with where you are now? Have you reached as far as you think you can go and you think that's enough to get you into heaven or do you want to know God and grow in godliness? Are you serious about your sin? Are you uncomfortable with other people calling you Christians? Are you uncomfortable with other people knowing that holiness is your priority? Are you comfortable instead in your sin or are you desperate to find strategies to fight it? If you're telling yourself that your sin is not serious, God is telling you, you are lying to yourself. If you're thinking my sin is acceptable because Christ has already paid for it, then you haven't looked at the cross long enough. If you are comfortable with sin, you are comfortable walking up to a crucified Christ and nailing more nails into his body as he dies for you. Is that you? Do you love sin or do you love Christ who freed you from sin and the punishment of sin and a life that would need to be enslaved to sin? All of that is no more. The question is, do you want it to be more and more? Question number four, am I justifying or excusing my sin? Am I justifying or excusing my sin? And that comes from Paul saying the Corinthians had eagerness to clear themselves. The Greek word for eagerness is the word apologia. Most of you have probably even heard that word, even though uh, we don't know very much Greek between all of us here together. Uh, however, you probably know what it means because it sounds like the English word, which is apologetics, a reasonable defense, a logical defense, a defense with evidence. So it kind of sounds like Paul is saying the Corinthians were repentant because they tried to prove they didn't sin as much as Paul thought they sinned. It's actually the opposite of that. They were eager to prove that they did sin, but that they were more eager to prove that they don't condone their own actions. They said, Paul, you are right, but also, Paul, we want to show you our repentance is real. They wanted to publicly say to anyone who saw their sin that I don't like that I sinned, and instead, I want to change, I want to be forgiven, and I want others to know that they should not sin like I did. Here's some questions you can ask yourself. When you're considering your repentance, is it easy to admit your sin? Is it easier to hide your sin than to confess it to God or to others? If you're accused of sin by other people, is your gut response to accuse other people? Do you accept that you aren't perfect to be saved or do you want to prove that you are perfect in order to be saved? Do you cover your sin or bring it before God? Can you tell the truth but never the whole truth? 
Paul had an amazing example of this in Acts chapter 26, when he was before one of the Roman officials. He could have just said, let me tell you my testimony of being a sinner. I used to persecute Christians. And that probably would have been enough. But Paul, in explaining the kind of sinner he used to be, doesn't just say, I used to persecute Christians. He says, I used to use my authority to lock them up. Then I showed up at their trials and I made sure everybody looked that I voted for them to die. And then after I casted my vote, I went and followed them to their cells and I started abusing them. I started torturing them. I started telling them things that would mess with their heads. And then I followed them excitedly to see them die. And after all that was done, I used all of my authority to go and hunt Christians in cities where I didn't even have jurisdiction. Paul wanted to confess all of his sin, as gross as it was, so he could show how great the grace of God was. That's why he did it. That is what it means to not justify your sin, but instead to justify God's grace. Here's one word to sum all that up. Humility. Are you humble? Are you a person who's willing to let anyone basically accuse you of any sin knowing it's not so far-fetched because you are a sinner? It doesn't mean giving in to every accusation someone levels against you. But I think Spurgeon said it well when he said this. If anyone thinks badly of you, don't be angry with them because you're worse than he thinks you are. Have you ever had that attitude about yourself? Have you thought there's a space where their accusations might be justified because I know I'm a sinner and I know I've probably committed that sin before? Are you humble? Question number five. Do I hate that I've sinned? Do I hate that I've sinned? And this is from the word indignation, which is just simply meaning anger. Now, it might be strange because to be angry seems like something that's uh, wrong. But spoiler alert, in the future, we're actually going to go um, and look in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says, you actually should be angry. Just a different kind of anger. And we'll get there later, but simply we can say this. You can be angry and not be sinning. It's very difficult, but you can be angry and not sin. When most people sin, they're angry because they got caught. When most people sin, they're angry because they have to change or face the consequences of their sin. Many people are angry that anything in their life would have to be under the authority of somebody else. And so they're angry. Christians are angry at their own sin. Christians don't look outside, but they look inside and they say, how dare I ever think this sin was acceptable? A good example of that would be Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. Joseph doesn't have an amazing life. He was a slave. But at a providential period of his life, he was taken in by a master in Egypt who was actually pretty good to him. And he gave him a lot of responsibilities and a good amount of authority in his place in the food chain. And he'd, even after all of that, the man, uh, the master over him, Potiphar, had a wife who tried to tempt him to commit adultery with her. And his attitude is absolutely amazing as he turns to her and says, how could I ever do this great wickedness and sin against God? Did you catch that? Joseph was shocked that someone would invite him to sin. He was shocked that he could ever consider sinning when God had been so good to him, even as he was a slave. Are you shocked that people would ever accuse you of sin? Or are you shocked at yourself? Are you shocked that sin could ever seem so good when God is so much better? The good thing is that could be you. Because the Corinthians were in a place where sexual immorality and lying and stealing and manipulating was all common in Corinth. And yet even they could turn from sin and turn to God and radically change and go forward to be an example of how God saves sinners. Their attitude did not come perfectly purified overnight. They weren't shocked with all of the sin they ever committed, but it started to change as they took their eyes 
off of themselves and off of excuses and onto a God who is gracious to them? Do you hate your sin? Question number six. Do I want to fear the Lord? Do I want to fear the Lord? And I know that sounds strange, but let's work to that. What does it mean to fear the Lord? First of all, let me say this. I remember something very clearly that one of my youth pastors said to me. It stuck with me because I think it's been very helpful as I fought and struggled with sin. He said this, sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. So true. If you remember that, it might save you at a moment where you are deeply tempted to sin. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 23 says this, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. So if you see something wrong happening or you're doing something wrong and you laugh it off, you're a fool because sin makes you stupid. And the reason is because sin creates a false logic. It tells you something is true that's not true. Here's the false logic. If I get more sin, I'll get more things and I'll be happier. Sin will bring me the most pleasure. That is absolutely false. And honestly, I could give you a ton of Proverbs to fool that, to, to prove that. But Paul has kind of said it pretty concisely in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and verse 8, where he basically summed it up this way. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever, whatever one sows. <clears throat> Excuse me. If someone could grab me that water, that'd be awesome. I don't know where that came from. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Thank you. It's all good. Galatians chapter 6. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Follow the Spirit, grow. Follow sin, progressively start to die. And he says that all comes because you don't want to mock God. Here's the point. Paul's way of fighting sin's logic was taking God seriously. Take God seriously and you will grow in repentance. Take God's word seriously and you will repent. Repentance will be easy. When you take God seriously, you'll see how scary sin is. When you take God seriously, you'll admit that disregarding sin might be the sign of a cold, hard, dead heart that's heading towards hell. The clearest way you could say it. When you take God seriously, you are in awe of the fact that God would forgive us and yet still judge sin perfectly and eternally. And all of that is summed up in one word, the fear of the Lord. <laughs> that was four words. Fear, godly fear. The fear of the Lord means taking God seriously. The fear of the Lord means reverential, awestruck wonder at the holiness, glory, and mercy of God. And when you have the fear of the Lord, you will have something powerful to fight sin. And that's why that's not only talking about fear, it's actually talking about the next word that Paul uses too, which is longing. Because fear, in a worldly sense, makes you run away. When you sin and you have worldly fear, you run away from consequences, you run away from God, and you run away from anyone who would challenge you that you're truly in sin. Godly fear, the fear of the Lord is the opposite. It actually makes you go closer to God. Though you are terrified at approaching God as a sinner who is holy and who hates sin, you also are scared to disobey his command, which is to be invited into his grace to be invited into his mercy and forgiveness that he has promised for you and has promised that it will change you. The fear of the Lord actually makes you closer to God. And that's why fear and longing kind of go together. The Corinthians, their godly fear led them to go towards Paul, even though they sinned against God, even though it wasn't the most comfortable thing in the world. Because they knew that they were restored to God and therefore they wanted to be restored with all of God's people, especially those they've sinned against. And that is the attitude of real repentance. They don't only fear the Lord, but they long for restoration. They have a longing, which is a word that means a strong desire. It is a strong desire for restoration with God and for the Corinthians with Paul. It is a strong desire to be retaught so that they could do better. It is a strong desire 
to be more godly than they were before. And here's the point. If you long for sin, you lose all of those things. If the thing you want most in this world is sin, you lose restoration with God, unity with his people, and all of the eternal blessings that come from him. Do you struggle with sin but want to give it up? Then you don't just look at your sin. You start looking at God. You start looking at who God is and the attitude you should have when you approach him. This is the way uh, Darby Strickland, another author, wrote it. He said, while rejoicing in God's mercy and grace, the person who sins, fears, takes comfort in, and reveres God's justice, holiness, and sovereignty. Recognizing the Lord's true place and his character helps dethrone self-centeredness, and it draws us to right relationship with him. Paul actually says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, where he sums up that whole idea by saying, if you have the fear of God, it does two things. One, it cleanses you from every defilement of body and spirit. Do you feel clean as a sinner? Before I was a Christian, when I was deeply stuck in sin, I never felt clean. I always had a guilty conscience. I always felt the sting that I had done something wrong, even if no one saw it. Do you feel that way about your sin? Because it doesn't need to be that way. Because the fear of the Lord cleanses you and your conscience from every fear and defilement. And it also says that it brings holiness to completion. It makes you completely holy. It makes you a whole person. Sin tears you apart. But the fear of the Lord brings you back to God who puts all things back together, especially you, even after you've sinned. Question number seven. We're almost there. Two more. Am I passionate about making things right and moving forward? Am I passionate about making things right and moving forward? And that's the word zeal. Zeal means godly excitement. It means passion for God's glory and passion to do better in the future. Even though there's sorrow and repentance, there's joy, excitement, and passion that God has made a way forward. Obviously not excitement over sin, which is who we used to be. And you know what? If you look at, take an honest look at your temptation, I know in a sense when I look honestly at my temptation, sin can be alluring because it's exciting. It feels new. It feels like unbroken territory. Sometimes it feels like an adventure. But godliness, knowing how supernatural it is, is actually way more exciting than sin could ever be. Thomas Watson again says this. Confession of sin makes us close to Christ in the soul. If I say I am a sinner, how precious will Christ's blood be to me when we confess our debts and that even though we should forever lie in hell, which we cannot pay off, but God would appoint his own son to lay down his blood for the payment of our debt, how is free grace magnified? And Jesus Christ become eternally loved and admired. Does the gospel excite you? Does it make you excited to know that all of the things we've done that deserve hell are totally wiped away, totally removed from our debt, and we can grow in godliness? That the sin we've struggled with, we don't need to struggle with anymore. Does that make you excited? The amazing thing is that can be so exciting that you can actually push past the fear of admitting your sin even to other people. And you can be excited to ask for forgiveness. Could you ever imagine you could do that? I know for me, I could never think that I'd ever be excited about saying someone, I've done something wrong, I need your forgiveness. But as a Christian, I know I can be excited of that for one reason, it magnifies God's glory. It magnifies God's glory. Because when I admit that I'm imperfect, but a perfect God sent his son to die for me, that's supernatural. And that's noticeable to a world that destroys everything it touches. When we sin, we're a part of that. But when we trust on God's grace, we get to be part of his plan to restore all things back together. So the question is, do you have a drive, a passion, an enthusiasm to repent? 
even if repentance seems difficult. Last question, number eight. Do I accept the other consequences of my sin? Do I accept the other consequences of my sin? That's the word punishment. It might seem weird that the Corinthians' sign of repentance was that they went to Paul and asked to be punished. Sounds strange. But the reason is because they knew that if they accepted any consequences of their sin, nothing could be worse than hell. Ask yourself this question. If repentance means that other people trust you less, would you repent? Would you repent if it meant that people might be suspicious of you for a sin you did commit? Would you repent if it means you would be grounded, even if no one saw that you do something wrong? Would you repent if it meant that gifts given to you would be taken back and you may never receive them again? Would you repent if it meant you miss out on certain opportunities? Would you still repent? Would, it, would you repent if it meant that your reputation for good might be lessened or ruined? The Corinthians did a lot of things wrong. And when they rejected Paul, they rejected God. And they said, God, we know your grace means we are restored to you. And there's no sin we could commit that would separate you from you separate us from you. However, Paul, if you should say some other punishment is in order, so be it. If you never come back to our church, so be it. If we never get to hear you preach the gospel again, so be it. If we have to send people out throughout all of the ancient Near East and tell them we Corinthians have done it wrong, so be it. Do you think you could ever repent like that? Could you ever accept the consequences of your actions. Because you can. That's the point. You can. No matter how supernatural that feels like, you can. Because if you have a transformed nature, simply as a result of believing in the gospel, simply as a result of Christ's righteousness being your own, because faith, Christ, and grace alone save, that actually can be you. You can actually care about God's justice more than consequences on yourself. You can actually care more about accepting any consequences your sin might bring if it meant God would seem just. Thomas Watson, again, because he's just amazing at talking about this subject, he said this, by repentance, we judge ourselves for sin. We are determined that God is righteous, even if he should destroy us, and that he should give glory to God, and that we should do what lies in us to repair God's honor. When you admit that God has done nothing wrong and that you have done something wrong and you ask God to be the righteous judge of your sin, that is dramatically noticed in this world. We will do anything to avoid the consequences of what we've done. When people accept and ask for justice to be done, people look and they notice for the first time this world has no idea what justice is. Everybody just wants their own way. Everybody just wants to sin as much as they can and get away with it. What is up with these people? What is up with people who would do wrong and accept the consequences? And the answer is Christ. Your answer is Jesus Christ could so radically transform a person that their attitude could completely change. And if you actually trust God with less faith than you think you need, you could actually accept the consequences of your sin because you know nothing is so bad as hell and nothing is so great as following a path of holiness because it leads to eternal life with Christ. These are at least eight questions that I think you can ask yourself in order to determine if you've repented or if you can repent. And here's the point, like we started again. Repentance, if it's real, is sincere and not perfect. You will never have this kind of perfect attitude every time you repent. You will never be able to be so perfect in answering all of these things that there's nothing else you could ever repent of. You can never feel more sad. You could never do more to restore it. We're still going to sometimes try to avoid the consequences of our sin. We're still sometimes going to try and hide some things. But the point is that you're trying harder. The point is that your attitude is slowly but surely being purified.
The answer is that you know how bad it is to go against God's way and that going with God's way is so much greater, leads to so much more peace, leads to so much more proclamation and reputation of the gospel being greater and greater, and it brings more glory to God. Real repentance is trusting God that he could make your repentance more real. Not perfect, but sincere. That you would want to honor Christ, and so you would want to do better at being honest about sin's destructiveness and how Christ is going to make all things new. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, and thank you so much for 2 Corinthians 7, 9, 10, and 11. Father, if I have made anything unclear, then please erase uh, my words from the memories of these students. Um, if I have said anything wrong, please let me be corrected or let your word be so much more clear than anything I have said. We want to bow down at your throne. We want to accept um, that we are weak and we still struggle with sin, but you are a God who is so much greater and so much more compassionate than we could ever be. And so we glorify you as the creator of the world and the restorer of all things, things that we have ruined, things that you are restoring. So Father, please help us to repent. Help us understand repentance isn't a checklist. It is simply a desire that your kingdom would, be, would come and your will would be done. Help us understand that repentance isn't a checklist. It's simply an attempt to have a purified attitude before you, that we would actually care about sin, and we would care more about sin as the days and the hours and the minutes and the seconds go by. That we would actually want to be close to you, because in your light, we see light. And in your light, we are cleansed from every defilement of sin and our holiness comes to completion until one day you make us perfect and we live without any separation from you. Father, let your spirit guide us and your word motivate us and your glory be our greatest motivation. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.